thought of myself as a modeler. The creative bit is all in clay, you know, carving into marble and other things is just a way of making the work permanent. It seemed crazy to be here in this area and not carve marble, so I started to come down to Pietro Santa. You know, when I came here, everybody said that oh, you should have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm working five studios in Pietro Santa. Every one of the previous ones closed. <laughs> I come with nothing usually. Fiore <laughs> was like a rock star where she went. She was larger than life and everyone knew her. So it would take half an hour just to do a hundred yards down the piazza. You know, their eyes would sparkle and they'd talk about art. And I think, I want some of that. This is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. Today I'm meeting Neil Ferber, who was born in Wales and by his own account fell into art school and became a sculptor rather by chance. His journey to Italy also came about by happenstance, and he soon met one of the more flamboyant characters in Pietrasanta, Fiori de Henriquez. After her death, he was invited to set up studios in her hamlet, Peralta, where he was artist-in-residence for six years. I met with him at La Polviorera Studios in the centre of Pietrasanta, formerly the historic Cervietti Studios. I've always loved the collection of traditional church figurines in the loft here, a historic reminder of the work done for churches and memorials made for personalities and politicians over many generations. The uncertainty of Brexit and likelihood that La Povierera would be developed as apartments has triggered him to ship back his work while he can. He creates angular, abstract pieces in white and grey-veined marble. I see them carefully crated up and piled on a small forklift waiting to be transported. We head around the corner to Il Cro di Porta a Luca, a historic workers' restaurant. Here, they kindly let us use their library, complete with old-fashioned gramophone and horn. This seems strangely appropriate, as I know Neil's wife is a writer and that he is a keen jazz fan. My name is Neil Ferber. I'm English sculptor working some of the time in Pietro Santa. Let's start at the beginning. Where were you born and can you tell me a little about your childhood? I was born in South Wales, spent the first 18 years of my life in South Wales, and then I left home, learned sculpture in a college in Reading, three years teaching in a country school, which gave me plenty of time to carry on making sculpture. So you worked in how many mediums when you were young? I mean, in a way, I've only ever worked in one medium, which is clay, but clay doesn't, <laughs> doesn't survive. You can't just put it on the shelf. So there's always been the problem of making it permanent. And for a long time in England, the only way I could afford to do this was to cast in resins and concrete. I never had the money to get bronzes made, which I would have liked at the time. I didn't carve at all. I never thought of myself as a carver. Well, Tutu used to say, you know, sculptors are either carvers or modelers. And I always thought of myself as a modeler. So I, 
the creative bit is all in clay, you know, carving into marble and other things is just a way of making the work permanent. And I bought a huge water mill, which I still have and is still my home in England. I moved north to um, the Lake District or just outside the Lake District. Bought it for very little money and I had tons of space to work. And until I found Pietro Santo, I worked there. I had a gallery and a studios and a potter, a ceramicist. Painting. I went to a teacher's training college when the staff had just all left Leeds Art College to run an art department in this progressive teacher's training college. My mother decided, she got me some forms and said I should go and do this teacher's training college because I was not knowing what I was doing in my life. So to please her, I filled in the forms, thinking nothing of it, and I got an interview. And because I filled in the forms wrong, I got an interview for the art department. I had one painting I'd done previous year on my own, so I went. I was lucky the person running it was ex-head of fine art at Leeds. He was looking for people who weren't the normal A-level art sort of people. And I must have said something right, you know, because I got on really well with him and I got a place and I thought, but I'm going to be found out here. <laughs> you know, I can't draw, you know, I'm not an art person. I did O-level art, that's about it, you know. I'm surrounded by all these clever people who can draw and do all these smart things, right? But luckily, because they wanted to break away from the traditional sort of thing, they started the whole course with sculpture. And my father was a carpenter. I made things in my shed all my life since I was small with his tools and wood. So making things by hand and the exercises they gave us came natural to me, really. And um, that's why I got into sculpture at the age of 21, 20 maybe, at college. And the people running the course, they were the first adults I'd met, you know, after leaving school. First adults I'd met were passionate about something. You know, their eyes would sparkle and they'd talk about art. And I think, I want some of that. You know, and so I learned a lot from these people because they took art seriously. And so I spent three years in this college and when I left that, I just wanted to carry on. My wife's a writer, a writer friend of her said, if you want somewhere to go and rent cheap in the winter, just to write, I go to a lovely place, Peralta in Camaiore in Tuscany. So she booked a couple of weeks and we, we came. And just by chance, John Marsh, who was a pre-Raphaelite scholar and writer, was writing a biography of Fiore de Henriquez, who lived at Peralta, the most interesting person. And both my wife and her had written books on Cristina Rossetti, so they knew each other. And just by chance, she was there at the time. So we got to meet Fiore and Dinah, her partner. And one thing led to another. Right? Next year they came back for more. I did their website and I got to know Fiore better. So I started coming more and more to Italy and staying with Fiore. I'm afraid I don't know about Fiore. Can you tell me about her? Oh, Fiore, <laughs> where do you start? Um, Fiore was born in 1920, studied sculpture. She came and lived, I think, in Casoli first with a sculptor called Morabito, who was quite a well-known Italian sculptor at that time. And she was hermaphrodite, so you never quite knew. I mean, I always thought her as being a woman, but she, she wore men's clothes and was very androgynous and very beautiful when she was younger. Grand controversial. Well, to start with Fiore, she's an Italian sculptor from Trieste. 
it was a period in the 50s and early 60s where she was a flavour of, of a decade in London doing portraits of all the people like Shirley Bassey, even the Queen Mother. She's very prolific with portraiture and very good at portraiture. She spent time in America doing lecture tours. She met Lipchitz and convinced Lipchitz the best place for the foundry and to have his work cast would be in Pietra Santa. So she brought Lipchitz over, who ended up buying a big house just outside Camaiore called Villa Bozia with his wife, Ula. And they were all three very friendly for quite a while, but I've never really got to the bottom of all the stories around her and Lipchitz. But finally they fell out and Lipchitz three were out in the middle of the night. And just above his house in Pietra Santa, there was a derelict little hamlet called Peralta, which she bought and then dedicated the next 20 years of her life to doing it up, and bit by bit buying other houses connected with the hamlet, and was a local celebrity. And larger than life, if you ever met her, you wouldn't forget. Fiore first brought me to Pietra Santa, that's an interesting story. Fiore was like a rock star where she went. She was larger than life and everyone knew her. So it would take half an hour just to do her 100 yards down the piazza. So what impressed me was she took me down the side street in Piazza Sander and into a shop that looked a bit like a mini-mart. And then I looked in and every single thing in that mini-mart was to do with sculpture. Every tool, chisel or anything to do with sculpture you could buy. There was a whole shop in a town that was just selling things to do with sculpture. Well, that's not possible. In England, we have one. We have Taranti, a tiny little place in the back streets of London. Again, run by an Italian. So I was incredibly impressed with this place. And, and I began to realize that Pietro Santa was full of sculptors and it was a sculptor's town. I got to know her in Peralta and and uh, unfortunately, five years or so after, she, she died. She went through Alzheimer's and died. But uh, I was by then quite friendly with uh, Dinah, who was her partner. And it wasn't until she died that I started to actually make sculpture at Peralta. But I didn't tell Fiona I was a sculptor for ages. Yeah, so Dinah let me have a studio there. And I built a studio in the tower there. And I worked there for, God knows, at least six, seven, eight years. And... Initially, I wasn't carving in marble. I'd never carved marble, but it seemed crazy to be here in this area and not carve marble. So I started to come down to Pietra Santa from Peralta and, and carve some of my pieces into marble. And that moved on to me renting a house above Pietra Santa for six years. I had a clay studio up there and I'm working five studios in Pietra Santa. Every one of the previous ones closed. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm still in that situation now with Paul Vieira, the last one. And that looks like it's going to close. So that's a sad, it's a sad thing. When I came, I was worried about getting a place in the studio. They were all so busy, you know, and now there's only two left that are actually working in marble. That's a great shame. So am I right? Do you work primarily in clay? And then what's your process of working? It usually takes the longest time, pushing clay around until I find something that I think is tight enough and has something about it. Then I make a waste mould, which means you just have to get it apart so you can take out the clay, so you then have the sculpture in negative bits of plaster. You 
put it back together again and mold. For me, I fill it again with plaster, sometimes a slightly harder plaster. And then why it's called a waste mold, you waste it, you, you break off the mold and you're left with a plaster copy of what was in clay. The plaster then needs to dry and then it can be refined. It's not easy getting smooth surfaces and sharp edges on clay, but once it's in plaster, you can get it very, very exact. If there are a lot of round, complicated sort of surfaces, I would copy one-to-one -one using the pointing machine. If they were more angular and flat planes, I would just make them by drawing and cutting card pieces and measuring, and often double or treble the size. So that's the sort of process. I mean, it's the process of old sculptor in the Renaissance times. They made clay or wax models, and then they made plaster models, and then they refined them, and then they carved them, yeah. So the pointing process... You know, it is foolproof. If you're very precise and you make sure that you tighten everything as you should every single time. But when you're taking points, I mean, on a complicated piece, you take hundreds of points and you've only got to forget to tighten one little bit on the machine and it moves when you transport it and you can ruin the piece. So I found it quite nerve-wracking. It doesn't interest me to sort of start with a piece of stone and then see what happens. I think I started when the size of this room, I'd end up with something the size of a matchbox because it's very hard to visualise when you do something on one plane what it's going to look like when you go around. So clay is brilliant for that because you can continually turn a piece in clay and try and then if you don't like what it does, you put it back again. Um, you can't do that in marble. When I carve in marble, I do want an exact copy of what I've done. I don't want to invent anything new. I've done all that. It's just a way of making what I do into a permanent material. And that is sellable. I cast a lot in resins back in England, but as soon as we tell people they're plastic, they're, <laughs> they're not interested. Has that changed over the years? No, like plastic? Not, no not it's in always England been. anyway, no. No, bronze and marble are romantic materials that people will invest in. Steel, not so much. And recently I've been working a lot in steels. How's the process for choosing marble? Statuary is good, certainly for the roundish ones that I have. Um, I don't like a lot of fussy colour and things going on because it works against the forms. But I quite like some of the grey. And I've done a couple in Bardilio. I'm not really into stone for stone's sake. It's a sculpture that interests me. There's a lot of people who come here and they make the same sculpture over and over again in different coloured marbles. It's more about stone than it is about sculpture. <laughs> so... But I like to make the marble do what I want to do. I don't like accidents. And what about bronze? What's the appeal of turning one of your clay pieces into a bronze? Some of them do suit bronze. There's certainly the smaller ones that I've got. And it's very precise. The finishing in the bronzes I did myself, because there is the danger that they're not done accurately enough. Because my work depends on flat planes and sharp edges and you know it's just my sensibilities like that and so if I have a sharp edge where two planes meet it's got to be sharp it's got to be exact yeah you can achieve that with bronze how does the three-dimensionality play out for you do you have a front and a back how is no no that's a good question I think a lot of a lot of sculpture these days is two-dimensional for me I mean my love of sculpture comes from Giambologna and Michelangelo you know 
complex figures when you move around every line turns into another line and there is absolutely no front and back you know i'd like 360 degree views so that they do work as you walk around i don't find any way of doing that other than with clay it's hard to do if you start in marble i mean it's a very sophisticated thing to do a lot of ancient sculpture you know like egyptian sculpture was just meant to be viewed from one place it's only when the Greeks and then the Renaissance sculptors started making these fully round sculptures, you know, and it's a very sophisticated thing to do, and very difficult. So I'm, I'm only feeling now that I'm just starting to be able to make pieces, you know, some of which even work when I turn them upside down. And it's taken a lifetime to get there, and I wish now I had another 20 or 30 years. <laughs> Can you speak a bit about what typifies your work? <laughs> back up my student days I'm not actually doing anything different now 50 years later I'm still using the same language and it is a language and it's about learning learning a language and working the same language over and over and a lot more of what you do becomes instinctual you know in the way that when you learn to drive a car you have to think about everything you know those processes become unconscious I go through loads of ideas when I'm working on that clay, and then I have to chuck them out if they don't work in that piece. But I never lose them. They're part of a learning process and building an instinctual library of form. Yeah, you have a much wider range to call on the more you do it. I didn't sell any sculpture for years, 20 or 30 years. I didn't ever feel it was good enough. I was a bit naive, I thought, but it's good enough, it can sell itself, but that's not actually true. <laughs> so, but I'm, stuff I've, I've done since I've been in Pieta Santa in the last few years, things have moved forward and the sculptor is, is better and it's nice to enjoy compliments from other sculptors that are here. Yeah, it helps keep you at it. So um, you seem to have come to Pietro Santra by chance, perhaps. Yeah, but mostly by chance. <laughs> what do you think makes such a strong artistic community here? It's getting weaker all the time, unfortunately. But yes, you know, when I came here, everybody said, oh, you should have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> but in the nearly 20 years I've been here, it has sadly declined. The number of sculptors, the number of artisans, the number of workshops, everything has diminished. It's a mixture of all these things, of studios and the easy availability of stone and foundry work. And the fact you meet sculptors from all over the world. Well, in England, I live in the middle of nowhere in a small market town, 300 miles from London, and I don't really know anybody. <laughs> to have any measure of success and sell in England, you have to live in London. You have to, you know, be known and seen on the scene. And I live in a very remote, you know. If I go to sit in a local pub, I talk to farmers. They don't talk to the sculptors who, you know, they might be interested in talking about the hay yield, but they're not good on sculpture. <laughs> so I do feel, you know, I mean, it was a good move to go to move north of England because I have a very large property, studio space and everything. And everybody I know as a sculptor in London, I mean, every square inch is valuable and studio space is incredibly difficult. But then, you know, you're also seen as provincial if you don't live in, in the cities. And what about the political situation? Has that impacted? <laughs> well, only that I don't know what's happening. So if I've got to move all my stuff and use a shipping company, 
I just know if they, if a no deal Brexit does happen, that's going to cost me more, you know, and be more difficult paperwork. If the studio hadn't been under threat of closing at the moment, I would have probably waited. But um, just seems it's imminent now. And who knows what the situation is going to be in six months' time. <laughs> My friends in Piero Santa are either Norwegian or Dutch. I think they all feel the same. They like being here to talk and socialise. Although they really actually talk about sculpture. <laughs> but it's nice people sit around in them. They're all very individual people, the people that come here. There's a lot of very singular female sculptors without a relationship that over the years come and live and very strong-minded sort of people, and they're very interesting, you know. So he makes some very nice friends. Yeah. to Neil Ferber. Since this recording, Neil has had a productive year in his studios in a converted mill in Cumbria, but he'll be back in Pietrasanta as soon as he can travel. You can see his work on Instagram, neil underscore Ferber, or on his website, neilferber.co.uk. And thanks to you for listening. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of the work discussed on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, or on Instagram. If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, please subscribe to our newsletter so we can send you news and let you know when the next episode goes live. And if you feel moved to leave a rating or review on your favourite podcast platform, we'll be delighted, as that will help people find us. In our next episode, I'll be talking to a young Dutch artist, Badria Hamelink, who, after recently facing a near-death experience, has doubled her determination to focus on art. The first thing that really came to mind after this had happened was, wow, I'm still here. I can be here. With that comes a certain determination, I think. I went hiking in Garfagnana and I saw all these incredible rock formations and there was this this power, this absolute power of the universe, the power that pressed everything together and made mountains rise up and there's something very fascinating about that to me. Listen out for Badria Hamelink, Absolute Power. Yeah.